it's been a couple of weeks since we've been there and to refresh our memories. But this morning, we'll be focusing primarily on the Gibeonites. In verse number one of Joshua chapter nine, this is message number 35. And it came to pass when all the kings which were on this side Jordan, in the hills and in the valleys and in all the coast of the great sea over against Lebanon, the Hittite and the Amorite, the Canaanite and the Perizzite, the Hivite and the Jebusite, heard thereof, that they gathered themselves together to fight with Joshua and with Israel with one accord. And when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done unto Jericho and to Ai, they did work wilily and went and made as if they had been ambassadors and took old sacks upon their asses and wine bottles old and rent and bound up and old shoes and clouded upon their feet and old garments upon them and all the bread of their provision was dry and moldy. And they went to Joshua and to the camp at Gilgal and said unto him and to the men of Israel, we become from a far country. Now therefore make ye a league with us. And the men of Israel said unto the Hivites, Peradventure you dwell among us, how shall we make a league with you? And they said unto Joshua, We are thy servants. And Joshua said unto them, Who are ye, and from whence come ye? And they said unto him, From a very far country thy servants are come, because of the name of the Lord thy God. For we have heard the fame of him, and all that he did in Egypt, and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites that were beyond Jordan, to Sihon, king of Heshbon, and to Og, king of Bashan, which was at Ashtaroth. Wherefore, our elders and all the inhabitants of our country spake to us, saying, Take victuals with you for the journey, and go to meet them, and say unto them, We are your servants. Therefore now make ye a league with us. This our bread we took hot for our provision out of our houses on the day, that, on the day we came forth to go unto you. But now, behold, it is dry, and it is moldy, and these bottles of wine which we filled were new, and behold, they be rent, and these our garments and our shoes are become old by reason of the very long journey. And the men took of the victuals and asked not counsel at the mouth of the Lord. And Joshua made peace with them and made a league with them to let them live, and the princes of the congregation swear unto them. Okay, so we'll skip a few verses. They find out they're actually not from a far country. They've been deceived. But Joshua and the leaders of Israel have already made a covenant with them. And so there's disagreement between the congregation and between Joshua and the people. And it says this in the text, I believe we'll read it in a moment, that Joshua saves the Gibeonites out of the hand of the rest of the congregation of Israel. In the last text we dealt with, we talked about going from carelessness to callousness. And that's what the children of Israel wanted to do. A careless decision had been made. But if we're not careful, carelessness can become callousness, and we just keep making bad decisions and multiplying the wrong. Well, Joshua stops that, and he saves them. Look at verse 22. And Joshua called for them, and he spake unto them, saying, Where have you guiled us, saying, We are very far from you when you dwell among us? Hey, that's not the question to ask. Why didn't you ask God about what you were doing before you made a covenant with them? Now therefore, in verse 23, ye are cursed, and there shall none of you be freed from being bondmen and hewers of wood and drawers of water. Notice this, for the house of my God. And they answered Joshua and said, 
Because it was certainly told thy servants how that the Lord thy God commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and destroy all the inhabitants of the land from before you. Therefore, we were sore afraid of our lives because of you and have done this thing. And now, behold, we are in thine hand as it seemeth good and right unto thee to do unto us do. And so he did unto them and delivered them. Notice, he delivered them out of the hand of the children of Israel. And they slew them not. You know what happened? They were saved. They were rescued. And in verse 27, And Joshua made them that day hewers of wood and drawers of water for the congregation and for the altar of the Lord, even unto this day, in the place which he should choose. Here's the title. From saving to serving. Here's a thought that I want you to have. Saving faith and serving faith are not the same thing. But they should be present in each life of a child of God. You may be seated. This time we'll enjoy this special and then we'll get to the message. to me. It's good stuff. I've already made y'all stand up here for like 20 minutes. Man, that is a blessing. And so I was, I was thinking about this. Man, God is worthy to be praised in the islands. 
No, he is. I'm not, I'm not making a joke. He is. And there, there are, and this can be taken too far, but there are different cultures and different style of instrument and music. And God is worthy of it. No, he is to be the center of it. And if that got you out of your comfort zone, don't confuse that with it not bringing glory to God. <laughs> I was thinking about a pig roasting on a fire. <laughs> and no, no, this is good. Yeah, I'm just going to go ahead and park it here. It's had nothing to do with this message right now, but I'm just going to park it right now. You sit there, and you can give thanks to God for his goodness, whether you're on an island or whether you're in a high-rise building in New York City or whether you're in a hut in Africa or whether you're a member of a secret underground church somewhere in communist China or whether you're in some forgotten place in South America or whether you're right here in the comfort that we enjoy in this valley. God is worthy of being praised. Hallelujah. That's good stuff. Man, I'm just... He's always been faithful. I don't, I don't know if you were, I hope, I trust that you were trying to think, not just feel, but think through the lyrics. And verse number two, I won't quote it exactly, but it said something like this. He's never failed to recycle a trial for my good. It, you, you know the idea of recycling, now that you use plastics or paper products, different things and that they're recycled and they're put to some other good use. And you think, well, that's just a waste. That can't be useful anymore. But through different processes of refining and developing, then you can take trash or you can take something that doesn't seem useful and you can use it for good. Mm. That's what God does with our trials. You know what I'm amazed by? I'm amazed. That's what he does with the trials that I cause. It's good. I've been the cause of some of my own difficulty, and he's able to recycle those things and bring good in my life out of it. Yes. Others can do that, and he brings good out of it. Man, he, it's good. It's good. I'm thankful for it. All right, in our text... Gibeon, if you look back in verse number one, Gibeon wasn't the only nation in this area. It was one of many nations that inhabited the Canaan land. Now, without going into all the detail that we have, God using the children of Israel to wage war against these had a twofold purpose. Number one, he had a covenant with the nation of Israel that through them all the earth would be blessed and they needed a place to inhabit and he was going to give them this land but God was also using them to judge the inhabitants of this land because of the debauchery that was a product of their paganism. And so people can read the Old Testament and have this attitude, man, God, the God of the Old Testament is just a brutal God. No, go ask, go ask Rahab about that. Go ask Ruth the Moabite about that. No, the Old Testament, just like the New Testament, is full of grace if you're willing to see it. But there were cultures like Jericho and like the other nations that are listed in the first couple of verses that had rejected God. And eventually when you reject God, it begins to show up in the cultural patterns 
of your lifestyle, of your cultural habits, and they were sacrificing their young, not, not young animals, they were sacrificing humans to these false gods, and there, there was all sorts of immoral practices that were permeating these cultures, and then there were resulting diseases and difficulties, and so God was bringing judgment upon nations that had forsaken him. Like the other nations, Gibeon was typically pagan in the way that these nations were. And many of the evil practices that were present in Jericho would have also been present in Gibeon. And yet we find something in Gibeon that we do not find in many of the other nations, most of the other nations, and that is this. There was some faith. Look, I don't, I don't want to take this too far, but they had faith. Now, was their faith demonstrated perfectly? No, no, because God doesn't, God doesn't tell you to lie. Okay, the alternative to lying is this. We believe in the one true God. We know we can't stand against him. We're inhabitants of this land, and we are seeking mercy before him and before you. Well, how, how would they have responded? I don't know, but I know Rahab responded that way, and she found mercy. In fact, she found so much grace, she's a part of the lineage of Jesus Christ. I'm, I'm not saying that their faith was perfectly manifested, but there is without a doubt faith. I want you to notice this, first of all, in verse number 9 and 10, and then in verse number 24. Let's just look at verse number 24. Here's the first point. They wanted to survive. And they answered Joshua and said unto and said, Because it was certainly told thy servants how that the Lord God, the Lord thy God commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and to destroy all the inhabitants of the land from before you. Therefore we were sore afraid of our lives because of you. If you go back, don't, but if you read in verse 9 and 10, they recognize what has been done to Og and the other nations on the other side of Jordan, what's been done to Jericho and Ai, they recognize that. In verse number 3, we recognize that that God is the true and living God and we cannot possibly go to war with him and survive. And they had this driving desire to survive. They recognize, unlike the other nations, that they have no chance without God, specifically the God of Israel. It's not a justification for how they went about it, but they recognize, they recognize that we are doomed if we don't align ourselves with you. Do you see that in the text? They wanted to, they wanted to survive. And so they had this plan. It wasn't the best plan. But remember, oh, this is such a good point. <laughs> Praise the Lord. I didn't even write this down. You say, man, I can't, I don't understand when people first get saved and they still do stuff like a sinner. <laughs> because you don't have everything figured out. And by the way, it's possible to have been saved a long time and to still be a sinner. 
And so here they're just trying to put this together as best they can. They believe in God, but they have this driving desire to survive. Now, you can be critical of that, but if you put yourself in the same position, you would be just as motivated as them. We can't stand before an army that simply marches around a wall and then it falls down and all the defenses go away and they march in and have their way. We can't stand before that God. We want to survive. And so they come up with a way, a means by which they, they might align themselves with the nation whom that God is blessing. It's not a justification of how they went about it, but operating with the mind of a pagan who has recently come to understand this is the true God, we cannot stand before him. We need to align ourselves with the nation whom God is blessing. It's what they came up with. And so after their identity is revealed, there was a sentence pronounced on them. And the, and the point isn't whether or not you agree with the sentence. Joshua is trying, to, is trying to make sure that he is both being true to his covenant and protecting the nation of Israel from the influence of their pagan idolatry because he has no way to predict what kind of influence they'll levy. And when you get into the book of Judges, you find that, in fact, many nations that were left did influence the children of Israel to turn away from God. And so he tells them, you'll be servants. Not in the sense that we think of, a, of servants, but in the sense that your occupation and your lives are going to be given to serving specifically in the tabernacle. He said in verse number 24, I believe, excuse me, verse number 23, you, you will... None of you be freed from being bondmen and hewers of wood and drawers of water. Notice this, for the house of my God. So within the worship routines that God established, there was need for wood to burn sacrifices, and that had to be prepared. And there was need for water to wash the offerings and perhaps even for cleaning purposes. And so it would be their responsibility, it would be their occupation, it would be their burden, it would be their requirement that they were responsible to make sure there was always wood and there was always water. From generation to generation, they were going to be responsible to provide wood and water for the service and the work of the house of God. So now I want you to notice the second point. They're willing to serve. In verse number 25. And now behold, we are in thine hand, as it seemeth good and right unto thee to do unto us, do. Do whatever you see fit, Joshua. Do whatever you believe is appropriate and right. We were in a position where we were going to be destroyed, and now because of your willingness to honor the covenant that you made with us, because of you protecting us and delivering us from the intentions of a, of a frustrated nation, because of that, our lives have been saved. We could not have stood before you in battle because your God is too great and too mighty and too powerful. But if we can be under your protection, then we understand that we can be, hear me, we can be under God's protection. If we can be under your protection, then we can be under God's protection. And therefore, whatever it is, whatever the expectation is, whatever you think to be proper and right and necessary, we are willing to submit to it. This is how they'd say it. 
And it sounds kind of familiar to something we hear in Romans 12. We would consider this to be reasonable. We have, our lives have been spared because of you. Therefore, giving our lives to hew wood and to draw water is not unreasonable. So here's the thought. The willingness of Joshua to save them produced the willingness from them to serve. Do you see it? Joshua was willing to save them. They were willing to serve. Joshua was willing to honor a covenant. It doesn't change the truth that he should have sought the Lord. Joshua was willing to honor the covenant that he made. They sought refuge in alliance with the people who belonged to that God because they understood we can't stand before that God. And so they found refuge. And I understand it wasn't demonstrated in all the right ways, but in, in their pagan minds and efforts, they were doing what they could, and so they aligned themselves with the people of God to be under the protection, not of those people, but under the protection of God. Because they recognized, I'm, I want to make sure you're getting this, they recognized that Israel's source of victory was not Israel, Israel's source of victory was Jehovah. We, we understand, we are afraid of you because of the Lord thy God. And they recognized that. And because of Joshua's willingness to save them, they were then willing to serve them. Faith to be saved and faith to serve are not the same thing. Not the same thing. Many people have faith to be saved. I'm about to deal with something, and I don't know what all of your thoughts are, but I've heard the sentiment expressed throughout different times in my life, and I want to deal with it. I hear people that say this. I've heard people say this. Getting saved so you don't go to hell is not a good reason to get saved. Okay, here's the problem with that. Jesus gave that as a reason to get saved. I'm, I'm parking it here on purpose. So if you're like, man, I thought we were going to get done real quick, just go ahead and buckle up and enjoy your popcorn because we're, we're going to deal with this for a minute. You know, now, I'll deal with the wrong side of it. It can be taken too far, but I want to deal with this for a moment. Jesus said in John 3, 16, that whosoever, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish. And then he goes on to say in the subsequent verses, he that believeth is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God. One of God's great motivations for dying wasn't just his love for us, but it was to save us from wrath. His holiness demands that sin be judged. And you can sit here in your piousness and think, well, I'm not guilty of what some other people are guilty of. If you are guilty, you are guilty. There aren't levels of guilt before God. We are all sinners, and that sin must be judged in the lake of fire for eternity. But God doesn't want one person spending eternity there. 
And so he says, believe on me. I bore the wrath on the cross. I died to save you from your sin. And can I say this? Yes, you can say it. From the consequences of that sin. And people want to over-spiritualize themselves or want people to think that they have this theological view that is just superior to everyone when they make statements like going to hell is not or avoiding hell is not a reason to get saved no it's a really good reason to get saved because Jesus died to save you from that dealing with a little child Again, I don't, I don't know what you think, but I'm convinced of this. I'm not saying this because I think it. I'm saying it because I believe it based on the word of God. And then I've seen that truth borne out in my life and others' lives. I went to my mom as a four-year-old, and, and I remember this. You can say, I've had people tell me, I don't remember stuff from that young. Your experience isn't everybody's experience. I can't help it that I remember this. You want to be critical of it, be critical of it. I'm not dying and going to heaven based on what you think about this. Praise the Lord. I'm not being arrogant about it. I'm not saved because of what you think. I'm saved because of what he said. I went to my mom in the house that we lived in in Ringgold, Louisiana. I said, Mom, in one way or another, I uttered these words, I don't want to go to hell when I die. I say, what were you guilty of? I'm a sinner. <laughs> Look, I had, I had done much, but I didn't have to do anything yet to be a sinner. It's a nature that's passed on, and it's manifested itself many times over. I'm a sinner. And so I tell her that. And she, I remember this, her sitting, going through the gospel with me, and I remember kneeling down with her. I don't remember everything she told me, but I remember kneeling down and calling on Jesus to save me. Because I believed in him to rescue my soul. And you say, man, I know people that have gone through that when they're young and they've doubted. Yeah, I did. I did. You know, God helps remind me. I'm not saved because of what I do or remembering what I said. I'm saved because of who he is. Now, is it possible that people go through the motions when they're really young and they aren't really saved? Is that also possible? Right. But don't confuse that with imposing your view of how it ought to be for everyone and certainly don't be critical of someone running to Jesus because they don't want to spend eternity being condemned. That's a really good reason to get saved and to put your faith in Jesus Christ. But, but, here's the problem. Salvation can be viewed as a get out of jail free card with, please hear me, with no sense of obligation or with no desire to show appreciation. I really want to major on that last part. There ought to be in every person who's been saved a sense of obligation. There ought to be. You don't have to agree. There ought to be. He bought you with a price. He paid a heavy price for you. You ought to feel a sense of obligation. These lovely young ladies here, here, some over here. And you have families that love you and invest in you. You ought to feel a sense of obligation to not just throw away what's been invested in you. 
You don't have to like every rule, agree with every thought, always enjoy every process your parents put you through or your loved ones put you through, but you ought to feel a sense of obligation. Hey, you too, fellas. Handsome, handsome. Sit up straight. Sit up straight. We're not, we're, not, we're not raising young men to have their heads down and to be ashamed that you're males. God made you to be young men. Sit up straight. Sit up, sit up straight. You, sit up straight. Look at me. Look at me. Get them shoulders back. You are handsome and you are intelligent. I know we make fun of how you look, and that's warranted sometimes. But God has given you life, and he's given you people to invest in you, and you ought to feel a sense of obligation to the people God has put in your life. Because of what's been invested in you. But can I say, what's true of them on a family level, on a church level, on a relation level, is true of all of us before God Almighty. You sit here and say amen about your kids and amen about what they ought to do. But you need to be thinking about yourselves before Almighty God. You ought to feel a sense of obligation. But more than that, more than that. Mm. Addison, come here real fast. She knows I love her. She doesn't always feel it. Do I love you? She knows it. You know what I want more than obligation? I want when she's 17 and 18 and 19 and 20 and 25 and 35. I want her to say, it's not so much that I'm obligated to my mom and dad. It's that I love how much my mom and dad have loved me. And I want to honor them in the way I live my life. I don't want my children being motivated only by obligation or even primarily by obligation. I want them being motivated by appreciation for what has been given to them. Thank you, sweetheart. Hear me. Hear me. What he has done for you is far greater than anything that I have done for her. And too many times we have this attitude, well, as long as I'm saved, I'm going to get there and it's going to be fine. Hey, listen, that's not going to be your attitude when you stand before Jesus Christ and have to give an account. There are consequences for how we live our lives in this life after we've been saved. And this whole idea that, well, it doesn't matter. No, it does matter because there is a judgment seat and there is accountability but, but more than that, just removing the process that we will go through as believers where we answer for how we've lived our lives and what we've done with his salvation, we ought to be motivated not only by a sense of obligation, but by a sense of gratitude that you did for me what no one else could do. You look at the Gibeonites and Joshua and the nation of Israel and through God through them did for them what no one else could do for them. Jericho wasn't going to save them. We're going to find out that these nations that make this alliance to battle Israel in the beginning of chapter 9, they're not going to save them. Only God through his people could save them. And only God through the work of Jesus Christ could save you and forgive you and give you eternal life. This church, religious work, education, clean water, giving money to all the poor, medicine, it can't do for you what God can do for you. 
You ought not only be motivated by a sense of obligation, but by a sense of appreciation and gratitude. Now, please note this. We are not saved by what we do. Wait, wait. Before or after we get saved? And I, this grieves my heart. People have this attitude. No, I got saved by grace through faith. But then if I do some bad stuff, I'll lose it. No, if it wasn't by works that you got it, then it's not by works that you keep it. It's a gift. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, not, a, not by works. Titus 3, 5, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us. But faith, here's the other side of the ditch. This is the problem. We want the benefit of being saved without the expectation of serving. Let's just be honest about human nature. I'm going to save you, and then you can go out and live your life however you want, and it's all good. That sounds good. It may sound good, but it's not biblical. It's not consistent with the life that Jesus Christ seeks to produce in our lives. It's not consistent with the gift that he's given us. But many of God's people, they want the benefit of being saved. And they enjoy the benefit of being saved without the expectation of serving. And here's where we get to the point. Faith doesn't just save us. Faith should also produce not just a willingness to serve, but a desire to serve. The faith of salvation should produce the faith of service. So here's the statement. His willingness to save us should produce our willingness to serve him. His willingness. They're excited. <laughs> Lord, give us a new building. Or come back quickly, either one. His willingness to save us should produce our willingness to serve him. This is a story from May of last year. In May, there was an ultra marathon being held in a province of China. And a man, and I'm, I'm not going to be able to pronounce his name correctly. I think it's Zhang. He was 30. And he was in this race. But after a few hours of the race beginning, he would be lying unconscious on these rugged mountains that the race started at like 6,500 feet elevation. He was among a group of survivors who were rescued when during the race, whipping rain turned to hail and temperatures plummeted hours into the ultra marathon. More than 1,200 rescuers were dispatched to find bodies in the storm. 21 runners died on that day, many of them suffering from hypothermia after the hail had beat down on them so much that they eventually couldn't get up. According to this, this, the runner about whom the story is written, he began to climb the toughest part of the race when icy rain and fell harder and harder and began to obscure his view. He said, it kept hitting my face and my eyes began to blur and I couldn't see the road clearly. The wind grew so strong that he eventually slipped and fell nearly a dozen times until he could no longer pick himself up 
and eventually passed out. This is where it gets wild. He woke up in a cave, wrapped in a blanket by a fire. Just reading the story. A shepherd had found him. And in his helpless, unconscious state, had wrapped him up, the story is true. Carried him to the shelter of this cave, wrapped him in a blanket, started a fire, and saved his life. Here was the statement Zhang made. I owe that shepherd. I owe that shepherd my life. There's a greater shepherd. And he's not Asian. He's not African. He's not Anglo. He's not Latino. He is the God of all people and races and tongues. And he died. And he saved you. And you owe that shepherd your life. The problem is, we settle for faith to save us, but we're not willing for that faith to produce service from us. Let me give you some thoughts, and I'm going to make some application. Number one, number one, just some practical thoughts. Number one, serving does not produce salvation, but salvation should produce serving. Salvation doesn't produce, excuse me, serving does not produce salvation. Man, Tina Stevens was saved before she started helping out with the food. She was working with the food before we got here, and she's continued to do a great job after we've gotten here. Her service has been faithful and steady, and God brings in other ladies, and there were ladies here before helping her, and there have been more ladies added to it helping her, and she's doing a great job. Do you realize she was saved before she ever cooked a meal for anybody? Her service doesn't save her, but her salvation should produce service from her. Number two, avoiding the consequences of hell is not the same thing as living your life to please Jesus and to help others know him. Look, it's not by works. I can't help what the scripture says. I'm thankful that it's not by works. And there are people who can live like Lot. And that was really, really bad. We heard about him during this revival week who can live like Lot, and they are still children of God, because salvation is by grace. It is not by your works. And God doesn't judge the righteous, who are not righteous because of themselves, but righteous because of him. He does not judge the righteous the way that he judges the wicked. But sometimes we get it in our head that as long as I'm not going to hell, it's not all good. Avoiding the consequence of hell is not the same thing as allowing the salvation of Jesus. It is meant to produce in your life that you are currently. To serve should not be deterred. We don't like the word serve. It's not really a fun word. Hey, Let's go have some fun. Let's go serve some people. Oh, but Jesus came not to be ministered to, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. 
and he did not balk at the service because it was difficult or it was inconvenient. I want you to see this again in verse 25. And now, behold, Joshua has said, you're under this curse. You are going to be hewers of wood and drawers of water. Behold, we are in thine hand, as it seemeth good and right unto thee to do unto us. Do! Number four, the presence of your service is evidence of your Savior's presence. No, the presence of service in your life, it's evidence of the Savior's presence in your life. Now look, mm, please get it. The Savior can be present and there just not be any evidence of it. It's a true statement. But when you're living your life serving, and you're living your life being the kind of server of God and people that he desires you to be, that is evidence of the Savior's presence in your life. So here's the question. Who are you serving? There's only two, there's only two options here. You're either serving him or you're serving yourself. You're either living your life in service of him or you're living your life in service of self. And it's possible to be living some of it in service of him and other parts of yourself. How can we know how we're serving God? Are you ready? Jesus gave us the standard. I'm almost done. I just got to make these points. I'm almost done. Jesus made this, made this the standard. Love God and the second is like unto it. Love thy neighbor as thyself. Hey, so how are... How are you serving? Who are you serving? You ready? Husbands, how are you serving your wives? What are you doing to serve the woman that God gave you to love? Oh, no, 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 no. Hang on. The man is the authority in the house. Congratulations. I believe in a biblical structure. But that doesn't mean domineering or condescending or ignoring their opinion or advice or counsel or ability or the opportunity you have to benefit from them. Ladies, I'm not afraid of this. The Bible says submit on purpose, and it means to follow the leadership and direction of. But submission is not tyranny. It's not abuse. It's not despising. It's not neglect. It's not demeaning. It's not viewing them as less than. Because every woman in here was made in the same image of God that you were made in, brother. No, God just made the man. You, you don't understand the Bible if you think that. <laughs> Woman's made in the image of man and man's made in the image of God. Nope, sorry. Theologically, you're really way off base there, pal. It is right. Thank you. I was trying to find Brother Fiavai over there. Oh. Brothers, how are you serving your wife? Wives, how are you serving your husbands? I'm a feminist. I'm going to serve me. Hey, I'll, I'll preach a whole message on this someday if the Lord will let me. You see, you know what the result of, of feminism has done? It has destroyed femininity. And you see all this nonsense with athletes and male bodies participating with females, that finds its roots in, I don't want to be what I was created to be. You are different than, not less than. It is good. 
It's right. I understand it's not popular, and it may not even be popular with everyone in here, but it doesn't change the reality of it. Your value, ladies, is not found in being like a dude. Your value is found in being like a woman that God wanted you to be. You weren't made to compete with men just like men weren't made to compete with women. It's not supposed to be a competition between genders. It's supposed to be a unity of producing the work of God in our lives that requires both genders. Don't be offended by that. Who are you serving in your home? Serving your kids? Look, serving your children doesn't mean you're yelling and screaming at them and making them do what you want them to do out of fear and anger. It does mean discipline, but it means controlled discipline, motivated by love under the authority of Jesus Christ to help them know him. Who are you serving in this church? Who are you serving? Who are you ministering to in this church? Now, I'm thankful for everyone that comes to be a part but we need to be actively helping each other. One person can't serve everyone, but every person can serve someone. Who are you serving? Young people, who are you serving? Girls, look at me. Girls here, look at me. Girls back there, look at me. Can I encourage you with this? Guys, can I encourage you with this? You need to, you need to always be on the lookout for a new kid. Pay attention. You need to always, always be on the lookout for a new kid. You are not at this church to serve yourself and to maintain your little cliques. It is good for you to have buddies. It's good for you to have people that you're close to. But there are other teens that need to know that they are loved and they are accepted and they are welcomed. And they're not going to know that if you're only concerned with being comfortable and talking to the people you want to talk to. They're going to know that because you are looking for a new kid whose face you don't know. But you go and you say, hey, what's your name? This is my name. I'm really glad you came. You want to sit by me? Who are you serving, young people? That's good. That's not just good for teens. And I want to be, don't, I'm, I'm, not, I'm, I'm not letting the world own every phrase it wants to own. Being inclusive can mean all kinds of weird stuff. But there is biblical exclusiveness and inclusiveness. You know what the exclusivity is? Without Jesus, you can't be in. You gotta believe in him, not the way you want him to be, but the way that he actually is. You know what inclusiveness is? He'll save anybody, anywhere, anytime that'll believe in him. You gotta just work at, hey, we wanna help you know his love. Who are you serving with your habits? Who are you serving with your time? Who are you serving with your lifestyle? Who are you serving with the direction you are living your life in? I'm living my life not out of obligation. Man, I'm living my life because I love him. What he's done for me. Miss Bev, where are you at? Was it easy to stand up here the whole time I was waxing eloquent? No. And y'all may not know this, but I'm actually mindful of those things while I'm sitting here reading. I'm thinking, I need to do this justice, but I also, I'm thinking about Miss Bev. But hey, God is worth her service. 
No, there's a reason we do the specials the way we do. We want to limit dead air. We don't want awkward transitions. We want things to move. You're like, well, hurry up and move so we can get out of here. No, <laughs> we want it to move. And so I ask those who sing, be in place. You know what? Sometimes you got to be patient when you're uncomfortable. It's not that I'm worthy of it. And Miss Bev knows that's not my attitude. He is worthy of it. He's worthy of it. His salvation to us should produce a willingness to serve him from us. Yeah, you're obligated, but it ought to be born out of so much more than obligation. It ought to be born out of gratitude and appreciation. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. Two questions. Two questions. Question number one. Heads bowed, eyes closed. Please, nobody looking around. Please be still. And even if you have no intention of responding, even if you could, could not be interested in this at all, for the sake of others who might be, please be still. And maybe even say, God, if, if there's truth in this for me, help me to understand it. Every head bowed, every eye closed. How many of you would say, I know for sure that I'm saved. I know for sure that Jesus has saved me from my sin. I've trusted in him. I'm not claiming that everything is right. I'm not claiming that I understand everything, but I know that I've believed in him to save me and I'm thankful for it. Would you raise your hand and say, that's me. Hold it up. Don't just put it up and drop it. Hold it up say, I know, I know, I know that I'm saved. Okay, I need to ask another question. You can put it down. Would there be any that would say, I don't know that I'm saved? I'm not sure. I'm not sure, but I want to be sure. Listen, you're not saved because you get things figured out. You're saved because you trust in him. So if you're not saved, raise your hand and say, that's me. I'm not, I'm not sure. Don't look around. Just put it up. I'm not going to call you out. Say, I'm not sure that I'm saved. I see it. God bless you. You can put it down. Thank you for being honest. Say, I'm not sure that I'm saved, but I want to be. You can. If you'll come, you can. For those who are saved, how many of you would say there is an area, whether in my home, in my work, in my attitude, in a private habit, there is an area where I am struggling in my service. Or maybe I'm struggling in my attitude of service. I'm losing a sense of appreciation and gratitude. I'm no longer motivated by love for my Savior. I'm motivated by what other people think. I'm motivated by this, this demanding sensation instead of just being motivated by love. And whether it's my motivation or it's the actual practical execution of my service, I'm struggling in my service and I need God to help me. Would you raise your hand and say in some way, that's me, yep, I see him all over the place. God bless you. If he talked to you, then you talk to him. Come to the altar. Come with your wife, come with your husband, come with your child, come with your friend, come by yourself, but come and talk to your Savior who has spoken to you. Brother Nate, begin to sing, let's all stand together. You respond to the Lord if he has spoken to you.